Contrology, Pilates, the method, the work. However you want to describe it, it is the brainchild of German creator and inventor, Joe Pilates. Hello everyone, I'm Darian Gold. Thanks for joining us on All Things Pilates. I'm sure you've seen many of the archival photos of Joe Pilates in books or studios or even on t-shirts, but you may not be so familiar with the person behind the lens or how he found his way to Joseph Pilates' studio. His name is Chuck Rappaport, and he is our guest today. Hello, Chuck. Welcome to the show. Hi, Darian. I'm glad to be here. Finally, we get to speak with each other. Chuck, your photos of Joe Pilates are seen around the world, but you've photographed many famous people, JFK, Jackie Kennedy, Marilyn Monroe, and even Fidel Castro. So I'd like to find out how you went from this Bronx kid to becoming such an accomplished photojournalist. What led you to pick up your first camera? I was babysitting, if you can believe it. I was like 16 years old. And um, I noticed that a photographer had moved in across the street in the Bronx. And um, I had a conversation with him on the street, asking him about being he, that he was a photographer. So he invited me up to his apartment. I met his wife, who was, turns out, was a famous photographer, Ida Wyman. But she had given up her career to raise two children. And uh, in the course of conversations with Simon Nathan, that was the name of the photographer, Simon Nathan, I, um, I was asked if I would be interested in babysitting. They had just moved in. And, and I think they came from Manhattan somewhere, so they knew no one in the neighborhood. I was the first person that they actually spoke with. And I told them that I was available, and so I started to babysit so they could go out at night. And we made a deal, and the deal was that uh, he would teach me photography and uh, give me some, you know, uh, small amount of money we just settled i mean it's like a dollar or something but it had it gave me the opportunity to work with some very fine professional cameras and also he had a dark room so i was I, you know i mixed it up in there I, uh let me use his cameras he even let me go out into the world with his cameras and uh, so, so I, I got hooked right away on the whole mystery of photography. And, uh, you know, I just sort of, he was a mentor. There's no question about it. Clearly. That's how I got started. I, you know, I was attending a special high school in New York, uh, which is now called Art and Design, the High School of Art and Design. Uh, but when I went, to, before they changed the name, it was called School of Industrial Art. Uh, and I attended that school for three years. 
and I was studying art, uh, advertising art, like, you know, to be a designer. I never took a photography course, although it was available at the high school, which is just as well, because those guys seem to be nerdy kind of guys, not my type of time. Um, but, you know, what's, it, what's really interesting is that somehow my interest in photography had led out into the world uh, that I was involved in because I looked in my yearbook, my graduating yearbook from high school, and there's a mention there from one of the guys that I knew, and he said, I hope to see your pictures someday in Life magazine. And oh, I don't remember, oh. I don't even remember the guy that well, you know. But what struck me is that I must have told a lot of people that this is where I was going. And of course, you know, I graduated uh, high school and I went to Ohio, to Ohio University in Athens, Ohio to study photography. So I made my dream come true. Absolutely. That's, that was one of my questions. Life magazine hired you at some point in your yes. budding career. And on your website, your fabulous website, one of your blogs really caught my attention. It's the story about the 1966 disaster in Aberfan, a small village in the south of Wales. And the timing was very interesting because I was just watching The Crown on Netflix, and they covered this horrific event. And Life magazine hired you, sent you to Aberfan on assignment to cover this story. What was that like? Well, let me give you some background first. Yes. After leaving Ohio University where I made some really very close friends who were friends of mine from for life and, and who became really famous photographers. I mean, I was in a special graduating class from Ohio University where uh, a number of us coming from all different walks of life descended on New York because I was returning, but they came to New York. They all stayed at my mother's apartment. <laughs> they all they Where had did no she place live? to stay, so they stayed with me in my mother's apartment uh, one Where at a time. Pardon? Where did she live exactly? Well, in the Bronx. Can you be more specific? Oh, sure. <laughs> On Grand Avenue in the Bronx. Near there are a lot of New Yorkers Lane. that you are know, listening. Do you know the Bronx? I, I had a boyfriend once from the oh, Bronx. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, McCombs Road, Featherbed Lane, which is a great story in itself, you know, the, the street that the people lined the uh, stream with their feather beds so that Washington's troops could flee in the night being chased by the Brits. Quietly. And, uh, and then it be, that, that lane became Featherbed Lane, which then became a street, which then became a shopping you know, a uh, center, well, you know, a shopping street. But anyway, my, my parents moved to, to the Bronx before I was born. My brother, who preceded me, was born in the, on Grand Avenue. Then we moved to Davidson Avenue, which was literally one block away. That's where I lived when I met Simon Nathan on Davidson Avenue. 
and it was a small apartment, you know, two bedroom apartment, one bath. And uh, eventually uh, they found an apartment in a nice building that had a doorman. Oh, yes. <laughs> they had a doorman, <laughs> but like just before we moved in, they, they got rid of the doorman. So it was a little too expensive for them. So anyway, um, I went to Ohio University, studied photography, came out of there with a group of uh, photographers who worked for Magnum, Look Magazine, Time Magazine, Newsweek Magazine, uh, the New York Times. It was really a great time. And also artists, Jim Dine was in that class, and he came to New York. He became very, you know, famous uh, pop artist. And through him, I met Klaus Oldenburg, who uh, Mary and I reignited our friendship when we got our little apartment in New York. So, you know, it was an interesting life. But let's now go to the Aberfan story. So, you know, it was difficult getting, breaking into being a working photojournalist. It's like really tough. I took a lot of jobs. I worked for a baby photographer, you know, I, I worked for a lawyer, you know, chasing an ambulance chasing lawyer where he hired me to take pictures of broken sidewalks, and broken stairs and broken ceilings. But eventually I got my break when I was told to go check out Jubilee magazine, which was uh, a Catholic magazine, was the Catholic church. I went there and talked to the picture editor of that magazine and told him that I was going to Puerto Rico to visit a friend of mine who just got a job down there in San Juan. And he told me that he had an assignment for me. It was a priest living in the mountains of Puerto Rico, um, a Franciscan, or no, a Jesuit. He was a Jesuit priest. His name was Frank, Father Frank. And so I went down there and I took one of those little jitney buses up the hills and and I stayed at their living quarters, which was pretty meager. And I spent a few days photographing Father Frank on his, you know, taking care of his parishioners. And that ran in the magazine several pages of pictures. That was my first published story in a magazine. And so with that, I then started looking around for other work. Because the important thing was that um, I went to work finally for Paris Match magazine. You know, Paris, it's called Paris Match, Paris Match magazine, which was like a life magazine of France and a very, very popular magazine and a really good photo picture magazine, a news picture magazine. Uh, in many ways, better than Life magazine because the photo editor had no problem filling up magazine with photos. If there was a wedding, a royal wedding, they would run 16 pages of color. Pictures almost looked the same. You know, it was like she looked left and then she looked right. What years are they? What what year? Years. Okay, well, uh, I left. See, I didn't graduate Ohio University. I left in my uh, end of my sophomore year when all my friends who were seniors left. I couldn't bear going back to school and being alone in that photography department. So they all graduated and I just never went back. So that was uh, 57 when I came back 
to home with them. And uh, I guess it was 59 when I attempted to work for Life Mag uh, for Paris Match magazine. I finally got myself in there, showed them my portfolio. And uh, the photographer who was the staff photographer who, you know, worked for, for, that, for the New York Bureau, she hired me, you know, that's in quotes, hired me. She told me that uh, in Paris, the new photographers come to see the picture editor and then they sit outside on the floor in this corridor. And when they need a photographer, they, he comes out and he points and he says, you. So I said, is, is that what you want me to do, to come here and sit on the floor? And he goes, no, I want you to come here and work. I've got a lot for you to do. And so I did a lot of cleaning. I did a lot of messaging, messagering, message, you know, yes. messenger. Yes. yes. <laughs> going out to the airport, taking film out to the airport, going up and picking things up at the airport, you know, as a gopher for no yes. money. He said, you're going to do all of this for free. He says, I'll buy you lunch if you spend the day here, which he did. <laughs> and I did that, I don't know for how long, seemed like forever, but it probably was like just maybe two months or something, until he said to me, uh, do you have your cameras with you? And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, come with me. We're going to go shoot some. Awesome. And so we went off, and I uh, helped him shoot a story. Um, he took my film sent it to Paris with his name on it. And I, I was really chagrined, you know, and I said, you're putting your name on my pictures? And he goes, these are not your pictures. These are my pictures. You're just an extra camera. That was a hard lesson. So, and then eventually I got a break. They, went, they, they needed somebody to go to Philadelphia and cover the, the USSR, United States uh, Olympic, you know, pre-Olympic trials. Just before the Olympics, they had a, a big track meet. And I went down there and photographed one of the American runners who was favored to win the 10,000-meter race, and he collapsed in front of me on the track. And I photographed his whole collapse, his, his attempting to get up, his fainting, you know, oh. the whole thing. And when I got back to New York, my, my boss said, that I hope you got pictures of that guy, Bob Soft, and I said, I did. I said, he collapsed right in front of me. And they ran two pages in Perry Match, six photos. That was like the first photos of a major magazine. But the great part of that story is, and, I, and this is written on my blog, this whole story. The great part of that story they had a teletype machine in the office that Paris would send them messages. And so my pictures went, were sent to Paris of Bob Saw. And then uh, at one point, the teletype came alive. And uh, one of the reporters who worked there was looking at the paper as it came out of the machine. And uh, he showed it to me. He said, he said, Chuck, come over here. And I, came, I went over and I looked, and it was written in French, you know, which I didn't understand at that time. But what it said was, Bob Soth collapsing on the track, two pages. Who is Rappaport? <laughs> they had no idea who I was. 
apparently my boss Paul had never told him that he, you know, obviously when he sent my when he sent my film and those other projects, he he took he took it as his own. But this time it went under my name because you know it was my assignment. Who in French they say qui est Rapoport? Who is Rapoport? Which is going to be the title of my book if I ever write. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so then I worked for them for several years, uh, more and more and more until I was became a Paris match photographer. You know, I I covered uh, the war in the Dominican Republic, and uh, I traveled around the country. But I still had I, my aim was still to work for Life Magazine. I mean, that was from the very beginning. I wanted to work for Life Magazine. Very, very difficult. I would go up there, and the only person I could actually talk to was a woman editor called the Contributions Editor. Her name was Ruth Lester. I'll never forget her because she was the key to me getting to work for Life Magazine. And what is it? She was a gatekeeper that kept, you know, photographers who would, you know, showing up saying, I want to work for Life Magazine. She was the gatekeeper, basically treating them nicely and weeding out ones who had no potential from the ones who had potential. And uh, she was the one who was instrumental in me finally going to see Joe Pilates because I went to see her, I mean, a half a dozen times, bringing film of local news events. They she promised me that she would have my film developed by the Life Lab and that if there's anything in my film that was you know, worthy of the magazine, they would publish it, and then she would give me back more film, you know. So I was getting processing and film for free for her. At one point, she, I was sitting in her office. I had my portfolio with me because I was off to see other, other potential people, and she said to me, have you ever met with Buddy Bloodgood at Sports Illustrated? And I said, no, who is he? She goes, well, he's the assistant photo editor, and he likes to talk to young writers. She said, let me get on the phone. So she picked up the phone, and she called Buddy up, and she said, you know, I have a young photographer here with a lot of potential. I think you should talk to him. He said, send him down. So I went, you know, Sports Illustrated is a time-life publication. So they're all in the same building. Time Magazine, Sports Illustrated, Life Magazine. So I went down to see Buddy, and he looked at my photos, and he said, uh, you know, you're not, you're not a sports photographer. And, you know, and I was a little indignant, and I said, well, how do you know that? He says, how do I know it? I'm looking at your pictures. You don't have any sports pictures. So I said, yeah, but I, I could do it. So, you know, then he said to me, what's your, what's your favorite team? And I said, oh, the New York Yankees. I'm from the Bronx. And he said, yeah, when was the last Yankee game you went to? And I said, oh, well, it was about a, a, two years ago. I went with my dad. And he goes, yeah, well, he said, you see, sports photographers, they love sports. They love it. 
And if they weren't taking pictures, they'd be sitting there watching the game. So he said, that's why I know you're not a sports photographer. But I loved your pictures of people. And I could use you because some of my sports photographers can't take pictures of people unless they're jumping to, you know, to a hoop <laughs> or throwing a ball. So he sent me on an assignment to, to photograph the marble tournament, the national marble tournament. These are all like 11-year-old kids, boys and girls, the best of the best, all coming to New Jersey to shoot marbles for the championship. And I went there and I, I, I did a really good job and I got two-page uh, public in sports. You were getting closer and closer. And then, you know, I did another couple of assignments for them, like similar, you know, just people, not, you know, not the actual sporting event. But. And then I got drafted. You know, I got my draft notice in 1961. Yeah, 1960. I was engaged to Mary at the time. And uh, you remember the historically the Berlin Wall went up. It was Khrushchev, Russian Khrushchev, put up a wall across Berlin. And uh, our President Kennedy said, uh, you know, that he had to show some show of force. And so he drafted 250,000 men into the military in two months. I never would have been drafted if it hadn't been for that incident. But I got drafted. I was 24 years old. I was like an old man. Right? I was older than my company commander in basic training. He was 23. I was 24. But I got drafted, and um, I gave notice to any of my clients, including Buddy Bloodgood, that I was going into the Army, and I wouldn't be available probably for two years. And then I got a call in October of 1961 from Buddy Bloodgood. I answered the phone, and he said, uh, he said, Chuck, are you in the Army yet? And I said, no, I'm still here. I said, I don't leave for like eight days. And he goes, good. I got an assignment for you. Some guy in New York, he said, over on 8th Avenue, He's got some kind of uh, fitness gym. And uh, from, the looks, from what I hear, he said that he's got these torture machines that stretches people and bends them and makes them stronger. And one of our writers, a freelance writer, wrote an article about it, and we need illustrations, so we need you to go there and take photos of him, doing what he does. Oh, yes. And so I went there, uh, one day assignment. I went with a reporter from Sports Illustrated. And um, the rest is history, as you know. I spent the day there and I shot seven hours of film. It was not an important assignment, it was just a routine assignment. I really liked this guy. I spent more time there than I needed to. People got there because they were injured and they had a they were lucky enough to have a chiropractor or an osteopath or somebody who knew what he did, and they would be sent to him for rehab. 
also the dance community, you know, they, when they got injured, they were sent there, you know, and Joe complained though, you know, because when I, the model that he selected, that's in some of my photos, a beautiful young woman uh, was with um, American Ballet Theater. And I remember in the course of conversation with Joe, he said, um, he said, I get a lot of dancers. He said, they come here hurt. He said, they should come here before they get hurt. <laughs> no, he was serious. He was serious. I, you know, I, in retrospect, I laugh at it. At the time I was, you know, I just nodded my head. I, I made a comment to him that I couldn't touch my toes. Oh. And he said, let me see. So I, you know, I, re I bent over on my, maybe I got halfway between my knee and my ankle. And then he went down, he put his palms on the floor, you know, and I couldn't believe it, you know. I mean, he told me he was 80 years old. He actually, I think, was 78. But, he, you know, he told everybody he was 80. And he, he looked at me and he said, how old are you? I said, 24. He said, you 24, me 80. And then he said, you come back here, he said, two times a week. And he said, and in three months, you'll be touching the floor like me. And I said, well, that would be nice, except I'm going in the army in eight days. And he goes, oh, that'd be good for you. <laughs> Had you heard of Joe yeah. Pilates before? At that time. What happened is uh, he wouldn't have, uh, that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't proposed it. What happened is uh, Buddy Bloodgood had a bulletin board behind his desk. And when I visited him, I noticed that there were photographs of all the photographers, you know, that he worked with. The act, not the photos by the photographers, but photos of the photographers. And they were all comical to some degree. You know, a photographer being lifted up in the air by some NFL lineman who could press, body press, you know, 170 pounds easily, holding the photographer up in the air with the photographer holding his camera. So I wanted to get on his bulletin board. And this was my last chance like, before going in the Army. And, and so I had a, a, an epiphany while I was in his... And, I, and Joe took me into the room where the bednasium was. He got on there and showed me what he could do, and which I have pictures of him. But then I said, I would like to get a picture doing that with you. And he said, okay. So I got on the bed with my trousers and shoes and my, well, I had, you know, my shirt and tie. I took my sport coat off already. I wasn't working with it. But as soon as I got on it, I, I had handed my camera to the reporter to back up and take a picture of me when Joe saw what's going on, he said, oh, no, he said, if you're going to have a picture with me, you have to be in the trunks. <laughs> so I said, well, I don't have any trunks. And he said, I have trunks. And he did. He had a carton, a paper carton in the dressing room with like, you know, a half a dozen or a dozen, I don't know how many, but there were all these trunks. I had to pull them all. They were white and black trunks, and they were Basically, Speedos, although they were made by Jansen. 
the Janssen bathing suit. They were bathing suit. Right. They were men's bathing suit. Right. And I just picked one up from medium and pulled it on. Took off all my clothes, put it on, came out. Were you were you laughing inside, or were you kind of kind of? Yeah, I thought it was going to be funny. I said, "Oh, this will definitely make it the buddy board." <laughs> the bulletin board. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I had picture taken. There are two pictures, you know, that are important. One is me doing a hundred with a roll down bar. And looking fantastic. I mean, everybody who sees that picture thinks that I, you know, I was a student of 10 years with Joe. Um, and the other one is me w with a head stretch, neck stretcher on my head, where my legs are open as few and I look like a jerk. <laughs> and that's the one that Buddy Bloodgood took that's for his hilarious. hair on board. Then I went to the army, and uh, and it wasn't until I got out of the army and I finally got to Life magazine. How so, many hours did you? Uh, oh, you know how long? How long did you spend with Joe that day? Do you recall? Well, I was there like two hours before lunch, and then maybe three and a half hours after lunch. I had to wait for Bob Wernick to show up to uh, photograph him with Joe. He was the guy who wrote this article. He was a no-show for a while. You know, and he came and he apologized. You know, he got held up. But uh, I didn't mind waiting there because Joe and I, we entertained each other. You know, we had the thumb wrestling match. We had an arm wrestling match on the Cadillac, on each one on each side of the Cadillac with our elbows on the Cadillac. I, you know, needless to say, he won. Yes. <laughs> Easily. Um, you know, he was, he, he smiled a lot and, you know, it, but only in one of my photos, the one where Bob Wernick is standing on his stomach, his Joe is smiling, but otherwise he was very dead serious in the picture. And, you know, it's interesting because I never knew Clara. She wasn't there. I didn't, you know, she never appeared. She was absent the whole day. And uh, when I was talking about that with Jay Grimes, Jay said to me, oh, you know, Clara had a problem with Joe whenever there was a reporter or somebody. She hated to be around him because he used to tell stories. And they changed the stories. They were, you know. Embellish. So I said, oh, so he, he made up things. And he goes, well, you know, he embellished. Right. So she didn't want to be around, you know, hearing, because he told me a lot of stories nobody's ever heard before. Do you have one you can share? And there's no way, there's no way to follow up. He told me that he had beaten up the Gestapo in Germany, and that he beat up two Gestapo goons who were trying to arrest him. And uh, I, at the time, I accepted it. Now, historically, we're, you know, we, with we, when I say we, whoever I talk to that's got some familiarity with Joe's life, tries to figure out when this could possibly have happened, and was it really the Gestapo or was it the police? Just to put, you know, the previous police to the Gestapo, but but Joe went so far, you know when I when he told me that he beat up two Gestapo guys in a in a bar, who were eventually going to arrest them, you know, they were, he said they were questioning him. 
he was living in a hotel, so obviously he was visiting Germany because he said that he went to his hotel to get his things after he beat them up and left Germany. You know, I got on the train or something. I don't know how he get left. He split because <laughs> he was a wanted man by that point. But I, I sort of challenged him. I said, how did you... How did you beat them up? I said, you know, we didn't know that he was, he never mentioned he was a boxer, but he did mention that he did acrobatics. I said, how did you beat, you know, two Gestapo goons up? So he ran out of the studio to his apartment, which was down the hall. And he came back with this device that he had created. And it was like, not brass knuckles, but as it would qualify as brass knuckles, it was a, a small piece of a pipe that he had in his hand. And from that pipe, there was three strands of beaded chain that came down from between his fingers. And at the end of these chain, these like 10, 12, 10 inches of chain, was a lead shot. Oh, he's creative. That you used in fishing, you know, for sinkers. And he showed me that that you could swing this thing and that these lead shot would come and hit the person in the back of the head and they would they would knock them out, you know. So and he took a swing at it with me, but he backed me up so you know he wouldn't hit me, but he showed me how and I said, Wow, that is such a dangerous thing, you know. I tried to convince Ken Endelman to make Yes. Maybe. He, he said no. He doesn't make weapons. <laughs> How many photos did you end up taking and then? Well, I took seven rolls and most of them were full. One of the rolls was a half roll. I mean, you know, so there's like 30, between 30 and 36 pictures on a roll. So, you know, I'd say I took maybe, um, 250 pictures of him, you know. Some of them were ruined by static electricity and his, he had static electricity in his studio. And I, I didn't ground myself. Like I, all I needed to do was touch a reformer, you know, or a Cadillac. You know, Cadillac bar. But what happens when you have static electricity in the air and you uh, wind your film quickly, it creates like a lightning streak on the film. So I ruined, you know, maybe a couple of dozen pictures that I was able to fix through Photoshop, some of them, but most of them that were ruined were ruined. Did you own these photos because Sports Illustrated hired you, or do do the photos belong to them? Photos belong to me. I was a freelance photographer with Sports Illustrated, so they had no copyright. And back in the year 2000, when I got my negatives back from Sports Illustrated, they didn't want to give them back. And they claimed that they owned them. And I, I finally explained to them that I was a freelance photographer. And by law, the copyright belongs to me. And so I eventually gave them up. Um, they gave, me, they gave me back all the photos I took from Sports Illustrated in one big box. And among those were the Joe Pilates. And I only went to ask for those things because of the, you know, the Pilates phenomena. Yeah. 
you know, how that came about was uh, Mary started, uh, Mary, my wife, I mean, if anybody's listening doesn't know who Mary is, <laughs> Mary it started to do Pilates in 1999. Yeah. I mean, she had heard about it, first of all, from because you. of me when I when photographed it, and then our, our friend Sam Waterston had you know, did Pilates at uh, Drago's studio back in the 60s, you know, the late 60s, or maybe 70s. Well, it must have been in the 70s. But I forgot all about Joe after that, you know. And then uh, well, Mary, Mary arranged with an instructor named Emily Lawrence to come to our house and do a mat class if Mary was able to bring another two women into our living room and move furniture. And they did a math class with Emily. And uh, and then one day Emily came for private with Mary and she had a portable reformer that she took out of the trunk of her car. She brought it in the house. I was suffering terribly from the back and I was about to have surgery on my back. And I was lying on my lazy boy when she came into our entryway and she opened this thing up, you know, it was a reformer that folded. You unfolded it and then she had to, you know, tighten some uh, wing nuts and things. And, and then I looked at it and I saw the shoulder rests and the, the cord Headlock. and the springs. And I said, I said, you know, I photographed the guy who invented that stuff. And she said, no, you didn't. And I said, no, I did. And she goes, well, where are they? <laughs> because there aren't any pictures of him. And I said, well, I, I got some downstairs. You know, I have a contact sheet. So I got up, painfully went down to my office, painfully looked through the files and found them. As Mary said, it was a miracle in itself. And I brought them up, and after Mary's lessons, she sat on the dining room table with a loop uh, and looked at the pictures. And she just looked at me and she said, Chuck, you got to get these out into the world. And that's how it started. In 1999? 1999, yes. So what happened is uh, I got my son to build me a, a rudimentary website, something very ordinary. Basic. And uh, I put... I. Um, scan the Pilates photos, some of them, like maybe 15 of them, that's it. And then I went online and I looked up Pilates Studio on Google or whatever. They, I don't even know if there was a Google then. But I got the, a name of about 40 studios in the States and I sent them a blast. Like, And it said... I have uh, never before seen photos of Joseph Pilates in the studio, if you're interested, with the link to my website. And, uh, but this is like 1999. It was like, you know, early. So nobody responded except one, Ken Endelman. Oh, wow. He sent me an email. Smart. Like, to me and he said I want to talk to you about your photo so I I called him and I got on he got on the phone 
and said, uh, you know, that these are incredible. He said, these pictures are incredible. Nobody, you know, who, you know, who are you? Where did you come from? <laughs> so he said that he had a catalog and that he wanted to put them in his catalog. Now, of course, being a, being a photojournalist, I thought he wanted to buy my photos and use them to illustrate as an you know as the story. So I said, "Well, let's talk about how much you'll pay." And he goes, "Oh no!" He said, "No." He said, "I want to sell your pictures. I don't want to buy them." So I said, "Oh, you want to sell them?" And he goes, "Yes." He said, "I sell equipment and accessories, and these would be great to put in the catalog." So I made a deal with him, and. Uh, then we, you know, like over the years, we became friends. Mary and I go to Sacramento. We stay with them. Wonderful. He's been so generous. He, he invites me to his POTs. His what? Pilates on tour. Oh, okay. Little conferences they have in different cities. Yes. So I could go and sell pictures. And, uh, and then at PMA, he, I piggyback on there. Um, uh, exhibit space. It gives me a table. Very nice. Do you have a favorite photo? My favorite photo is Emily Lawrence's favorite photo, which is the, the long spine on the reformer with Joe standing, you know, holding her legs up. And, and this, a close second is the barrel picture um, with John... You know, the, the author of the book. John Steele? John Steele? John, John Steele came over to me at one of the conferences and said, you know, the man on the barrel is my dad. And I was wearing a T-shirt with that picture. And he said, I would love to get a, a T-shirt like that. So I took my T-shirt off and gave it to him. <laughs> but I like so, there's so many pictures I like. I know, and I was a pretty young photographer, a new photographer, so I'm amazed at the job I did. Of course, I would like to go back in time and do it over again, yes. knowing Pilates, you know, yes. knowing the method. I would have a much different approach, but maybe there was some something to be said about being ignorant and naive about everything and just, what just you shooting see. You know, Do you images. practice Pilates? Do you practice it now? Yes. I've been doing it for years, actually. But then, you know, not, I'm not religious about it. But your back is good. Oh, yeah, my back. Emily fixed my back. You know, after surgery, she had me sit on the floor against the couch, and she put the cushions of the couch between me and the couch and had me do roll-ups, but they were only like one-inch roll-ups, two-inch roll-ups. That's all I could go back. She said, we don't want you, you know, like hurting. And then each time she came to visit, she would, like, take a pillow away, a cushion away, until finally I could lie down flat and come Smart. up with a roll-up. And, uh, and then I started taking lessons at her studio. And uh, Where is her I studio? Four years. Hmm? Where is her studio? Well, she's re she doesn't do that anymore. She got married and then had children and could give up teaching. But it used to be in Santa Monica. Okay. Uh, and I'm talking about 
2000, from 2000 to 2004, four years. Oh, I was there. I was there, Chuck. I was yeah. living in Santa Monica. Well, she was on yes. uh, uh, 7th Street, you know, near a block off 7th. Well, actually, she was living in a house. She had the back house of a, of a bigger house, and, the, and there was a garage, and the garage was converted. And she had two reformers and a Cadillac and a chair. Twice a week. Yes. Yeah, twice a week for four years. Wonderful. Then we gave that up, and I started studying Krav Maga. Whoa. You know, yes. So I did that for four years. And then... Uh, now you could wrestle, Joe. Yeah. Well, what happened was um, we stopped our um, Pilates. We just stopped. One day we were sitting on the floor... With, at our coffee table, sitting on the floor, like having dessert and watching TV. And then we couldn't get up. Uh-oh. You know, like, I, I had to struggle to stand up. And Mary, I, you know, Mary couldn't get up. And I looked at Mary and I said, you know, I said there was a study in Brazil that people our age, if they needed to use more than, you know, their legs to get up, they would... They died early. So I said, so uh, I said, you know, there's a Pilates studio in the building where our doctor is, our yep. medical doctor. And it's called Vintage Pilates. And I, I used to park and walk past that place all the time, although I never went in. So I said, oh. so I'm going to go in. So I went in and I met uh, the owner and uh, Jay Grimes was there. And then I started I started working there, uh, working out with Mary, too. We would go. I think we went once a week. Not sure. Andrea Meda. You know the name Andrea Meda? She was our instructor yes. there. Yes. Our principal instructor. And then sometimes uh, we met Tim Crash there. He, he worked with us. And uh, Dina worked with us, and Taryn Frischman worked with us. So we had some good teachers. Yes. So we were there until they closed. And uh, then I started going to Westwood Pilates. And I worked with Ken Crash. We went there for a while. And then, and then both Mary and I started to become a little infirm. And then it was more difficult to do it. But in the meantime... I bought a reformer balanced body, and I saw so I, I have a reformer with the tower, and I use that maybe once or twice a week. Different exercises. I don't do the the order, order like that. I do that we did in the one hour sessions. Um, right. So, in fact, Jay Grimes encouraged me to to not do that all the time. That I should, and I shouldn't do that without an instructor you know, next to me. Uh, but he said, you know, you can do, you know, 10 minutes. Many exercises, yes. In 10 minutes, absolutely. On your website, what's the name of your website, by the way? icrappaport.com. On your website, you have a special sale going on for just October of 2021. Is that correct? Yes. 
Can you tell us a little bit more? Well, it's Mary's 80th birthday, and uh, uh, it's special, very special. Uh, she didn't think she would actually live to see 80, you know, uh, and uh, and she suggested it. She, she said, why don't you have a sale, she said, to celebrate my birthday. And I said, great, I'm going to do that. So uh, the 12 by 17 inch photos are priced at $160 each. So I cut it in half to $80 and I'm offering four different photos. I mean, I couldn't do them all. So I just selected four photos and you can see them on Facebook and Instagram. I got a number of people already. I'm sure. Um, a dozen people have ordered the photos, most of them ordering all of them. And that's what, you know, that's what I've been doing all day today is printing. Hey everyone. As I said in the opening, Chuck Rappaport has had a very accomplished career as a photojournalist, and taking the famous photos of Joe Pilates was just one day in his life. I couldn't resist asking Chuck about a couple of other standout assignments. I started working for Life Magazine doing some small local stories and then a couple of travel stories, you know, where I actually went places out of the city like, you know, San Francisco and things like that. And then the Aberfan disaster happened. It happened, and I was watching it on television, and, you know, 123 people died, 116 children, and then adults, a total of 100, and I think, I can't remember, 23 or 32, a little dyslexic. They were killed in this avalanche that came down, crushed the school. And we had a six, like a, five-month-old baby and it affected me so i went down to life magazine and i went to see the managing editor and i uh went in and remember i'm pretty new at life magazine and i suggested going to Aberfan to do a story about a town without children wow and when he heard that he reacted immediately and he said go Trusted you. And uh, which I appreciate forever that he accepted my idea. He took a shot with me, you know, he took a chance. And I went there and I spent five weeks living in that village. But I got there after the, after the disaster and after it was all, you know, sort of cleaned up, not completely. You saw the, the crown. Uh, episode which was very good very well done by the way you know you know all of that chaos and grief was changed by the time i got there you know there was no chaos anymore just a lot of grief sure and i lived in the pub upstairs above the pub i got a room that was very cold no heat and it was in november and uh, the window looked out on the disaster site. I could see it from my window. And uh, I was uh, not welcomed at, me, at first, because the people hated the journalists that had come during the disaster. But I ingratiated myself to them. And, yes. And I just kept taking pictures. And Life magazine ran a big story. So you know, what's happened 
because of that. I mean, I had a, I had a major exhibit at the National Library of Wales. And it was like 40 years after the disaster, 116 photographs in their main gallery. And then I had a book published, you know, like a catalog of, of, the, of all the pictures. And then came the 50th anniversary in 2016, was the 50th anniversary. So I was invited back to Wales when the University of Wales had a symposium about the coverage, different aspects of the coverage. And they had reporters and photographers there. Uh, and I was one of them. And uh, the people of Aberfan know me and uh, they've made me an honorary citizen of the village. But I'll tell you the, the most touching story out of this assignment was the John Collier story. So while I was there with the life writer, you know, we were told about this man who lost everything. His house was in the path of the, of the avalanche. So his house was destroyed completely. And uh, in it was his wife and his young child. And his older child, who was a high school student, ran back towards the house when this thing was happening and was killed, you know, like on running back, just overwhelmed. So he lost everything. And uh, so we arranged to meet with him. We went to his sister-in-law's house. It was, I think it was his sister-in-law, brother's house. And he was there, he was wearing a dark black suit and a white shirt. And he was sitting in a room that had a photo of him, of he and his wife, it was the only picture. And it belonged to the people in their home, you know, like the family picture. So we sat and we listened to his story and I started to cry. He was weeping, sometimes really sobbing as uh, Jim Hicks, the writer kept interviewing him and pulling out stuff. And, and I hadn't taken a photo. And Jim Hicks was looking at me like, and said, you know, and said, you know, like indicating like with his head, take, you know, you know, go to work. Yeah. So finally I looked and I said, John, I would, I would like to take a photo of you if it's all right. And he looked at me and he said, oh, yeah, man, it's, it's your job, man. Do it. It's your job. So I took pictures of him, which ran in the magazine, Life magazine, and with the story. It was the right thing. Him. Beautiful. Yeah. You know, as a, as a working photojournalist, you know, there were times I used to shut off my feelings and say, screw it, you know, I'm going to shoot it. But I was like in this guy's space. He's crying. He's my tears are running down my cheeks, and uh, I just couldn't bear having him look at me and say "stop," you know. So I asked for permission. Beautiful. And he gave it to me. What's interesting though is that remembering that he gave me permission to photograph him, that years later, almost forty years later, I got an email. And the woman wrote this email, said, I'm John Collier's daughter. Well, I mean, I got a shot went down my spine. I mean, John Collier lost everything, you know. 
Well, she explained to me that her mother, who was American, living in uh, Brussels, had seen the copy of Life International with the story about John Collier. And she had to meet him. So she arranged to meet him. And a love affair happened, and they got married, and she was the issue of this marriage. And so it occurred to me that John Collier's permitting me to photograph him changed his life. And that's like the power of like photography, the power of photojournalism, the power of journalism. How, you know, there's so, there's so much there. But but Chuck, it was you and you were there at the right time, which seems to have happened many times throughout your life. You're at the right place at the right time. Your intention was pure and focused. I mean, you got life you got life magazine for Pete's sake. That's what you told everyone when you were a kid. Right. Well, Mary always says, you know, she said, Chuck, you always made your dreams come true. When the magazines all started folding and I realized there was no future at being a photojournalist anymore for me, I decided that uh, I would write a script. And so I wrote a script. I sold the script. I became a screenwriter. Amazing. And, you know, 35 years in Hollywood. It's amazing. <laughs> writing for television. And... But you're, you're so not Hollywood at all, you know. <laughs> I live there. I know what Hollywood looks like and sounds like. Chuck, we're running out of time. And I just have been dying to ask you this one question because there's a little bit of a backstory. I don't know if a lot of people know. For sure, the Pilates community probably doesn't know. And I hope that you'll share it with us. This is when you spent a number of years at the Pentagon as the U.S. Army Chief Photographer. And this was during the Kennedy administration. Mm-hmm. And at some point, the Pentagon sent you to photograph the president at the White House. And w- one of those photos in your online collection is a beaming President Kennedy. He's, he's laughing. And you caused that at something that transpired between the two of you. Will you share that with us? Well, what happened is that um, as a private in the Army, I used to go to the Rose Garden whenever there was some kind of ceremony that involved the Army, usually a retirement of a general or something like that. So one day I I went, uh, one day I was there, and uh, I didn't get the photo of him shaking hands with the general. I was... Uh, nudged, pushed by an inconsiderate photographer just when I was ready to take my picture. And I didn't, I didn't get to that picture, you know. And Kennedy had noticed it at the time. So because I had a name tag and he had seen me there several times, you know, he said, uh, did you miss that photo, Private Rappaport? And I said, yes, sir, I did. And he goes, he turned to the general and he said, called him back. He said, one more time for Private Rappaport. So the general returned 
and they shook hands just for me, like, you know, looking at me, and I took the picture, and, and you know, and he said something like, you, you got it now? You know, well, for several times after that, he would use me as a brunt of a joke, and so he would say things like, uh, lens caps on private rap report, you know. Teasing you. Uh, <laughs> he teased me. And uh, so we had this relationship, you know, but I was like flattered that he knew who I was. You know? uh, then uh, uh, he and Jackie Kennedy went to France. And while they were there, Jackie went to the cultural minister of France, uh, André Malraux, his name was a writer. He was a famous French writer who became cultural minister. And she met with him and she said, you know, what would be wonderful is if you were to arrange to have the Mona Lisa brought to America so that Americans who never can go to get to France could see the original painting, the Mona Lisa. Well, they did. They worked it out, and the Mona Lisa came on the France, that was the name of the ship, the cruise ship, the steamship, the France, and they put it at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., and I was still in the Army when that happened. And so uh, I got a call from Perry Match, and they asked me if I, was it possible for me to work for them uh, when the, when the uh, ceremonies and uh, the story was happening. So I got permission from the Army. I went to my bosses at the Army, and I told them that this was a great opportunity for me uh, to make some money. And, uh, and they said, yes. So I went to work for Perry Match for a few days. And then uh, Paul, the guy I worked for, you know, who's, who started me off there, he told me that uh, he couldn't make it to the French embassy for the big gala with the president and that uh, I should go. I should rent the tuxedo and I should go and, and get pictures. And that I told, he told me to go to the French embassy uh, with my press credentials and to go to the kitchen entrance and go into the kitchen and wait there for Madame Alphonse. She was the French ambassador's wife. So I waited in the kitchen with my camera bag and my tuxedo. And then this beautiful woman came in, dressed fabulously. And she walked up to me and she said, uh, Vous êtes le photographe pour Paris Match? And she said, you know, are you the photographer for Paris? And I said, we oui, don't. I didn't speak very much French, but I knew that. And then she, <laughs> she said to me in French that I should follow. I recognize that word, suive, you know, uh, suive uh, le président et moi. And then she took me into the dining room, like it was a big dining room. And it was empty, but the tables were all set. And she planted me there and she said that the White House, the Maison Blanche, interdit, forbidden for the photographers to be in this room, but you can stay. So she left me and then she went out into the entryway. And when Kennedy and arrived with Jackie and Bobby and Teddy and the whole family, and they did all their photo op out in the hall, you know, the entryway by the main stairway. I mean, the French embassy was fabulous. It was a mansion. And then the, door, the doors opened up and in walked 
all the people and you know and people had been arriving while i was there wow. uh, french diplomats french generals all that and then she came in with president kennedy and she walked him through the room introducing him to everyone this is the general this is the, you know. and i was walking backwards taking pictures of her and kennedy as she had instructed and he kept looking at me and recognized me and she looked at him and realized that he had reacted to me so she felt she had to explain me and in english she said i'm excuse me mr mr president but this man had come all the way from paris for a parry match and i could not say no to him and he looked at, he started to laugh <laughs> because it was such a bullcrap story and he because she was introducing me i shook his hand <laughs> i shook his hand and then as soon as i let go of his hand i picked up my camera and snapped the picture that you see where he is laughing and she didn't have any clue as to what was happening and then when, you know later when i took a cab home i was sitting in a taxi cab and my elation or whatever feelings i had about that interchange started to slowly drift towards doom and i i started to think what if he thinks that i lied to her not that she's lying to him you know oh. and then what if he goes back to the white house tomorrow or you know or, oh, oh. and says to general clifton who is the military attache who knew who i was because he used to be the head of the, the department i worked for in the pentagon what if he said you know that rapaport photographer you know he gave some kind of story to you know and i didn't know if it would be received as funny or you know you don't want to see this guy anymore <laughs> you know we could make that happen right. like that that's what i was nervous yes. i said oh my god i'm going to wind up in greenland you know <laughs> taking pictures of ice that was the story of the madam alfonso but you didn't hear anything after that no either way it was, so it was okay. So you didn't have to sweat anymore. He never brought it up. I saw him a couple more times after that, but he had, you know, his familiarity with me was even more familiar. I went to White Sands, New Mexico after that incident to photograph him watching the missile launch in new missile launches. And uh, photographers all gathered around him when he was getting in his car to leave. And he looked at me and he pointed to the back of the car. He just went like, you, move to the back of the car. And so I did. And then he turned around to get into the car and he posed for me. Wow. You know, he just gave me this great shot of him. And in the background are all the photographers photographing his back, <laughs> you know. And then when he was assassinated, Mary and I were out of the army for one month when he was assassinated and I was, we were both broken up and we, I was then covered the funeral 
of President Kennedy for Paris Match, and which ended with his internment in Arlington. And I was there, and Mary was there. She was working for Paris Match. They needed some people. They need. They needed a lot of people, so they hired Mary for the couple of days to act as a coordinator. And she had come to the cemetery separate from me, but she found me at the end. And there's a there's a photo. I don't know where it is now. We have it somewhere. There's a photo that was taken by another photographer of her crying on my both of us crying on each other's shoulder. At the end of each episode, I introduce one of my students who share how Pilates has impacted his or her life. Today's featured student is Kate Brady. She says, even as my body ages, I feel balanced and confident because of the fundamental strength gained from my Pilates practice. All Things Pilates is created, edited, produced, and hosted by me, Darian Gold. Mastered audio mix by Fabian Romero. I'd really like to thank, again, those of you who are leaving reviews, and I always welcome your comments or suggestions anytime. You know, you may be traveling again, and if so, why not take one or both of my apps along with you? Stay in condition in your hotel, Airbnb, and heck, even in your tent. In fact, that's why I produced my apps, for your convenience. And think of it this way. For less than the cost of a latte, you can have unlimited time with me. There are links to the apps on my website, DarianGold.com. Until we meet again, please be good to yourselves and see you in a couple of weeks when I welcome Pilates elder Lolita San Miguel. <laughs>